Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I'm joined again by Matthew Bianco and Andrea Lipinski. How are you all today? Great. Splendidly. Splendidly. Glad to be here. Good. Everybody made it through the holidays and the new year unscathed, relatively? Relatively. (laughs) Just sliding into the new year. Well, we are returning once again to Sophocles 1 for our final of the three plays, uh, Antigone. Andrew, you've been giving us a synopsis so far in Sophocles. Do you want to jump in on that role again? Sure, sure. Um, It's been a little while. So it opens up with the prologue that Antigone is going to bury her brother to honor the fam- her family and the gods and asks for her sister's help. Her sister says, uh-uh, there's a command. You can't do that. Creon said. And so then um, the chorus announces Thebes' victory um, and that the two brothers are dead and there's a procession of chariots through town. Creon makes his declaration that anybody who buries one brother will die um, and put post guards to protect it, right? And then the the chorus uh, talks about how man should should man honor God's laws. If man honors God's laws, then the city will prosper. Then we go to the next scene, and Antigone um, is brought before Creon because Creon calls out oh, because. Did I skip a scene? Creon declares that you can't. Yeah, uh, guards show up and tell Creon that there's been dust put on his body. And um, so then Antigone is brought, They they the guards watch and see that who did it. And they see Antigone does it. So they bring her before Creon. Creon immediately calls for Ismene as well. And she then claims she helped. And Antigone says, no, you didn't. You can't have any right to this. Um, this is mine. I did it. And so Creon declares that she must die. And then her fiance, which happens to be the uncle's second born son, Haman, um, shows up to daddy and praises daddy at first. Right. And how good it is, how what a great man he is and to be under him and then says, but, you know, I hear things that you don't hear um, being the king. And what if people in the land were saying what you said here isn't right? And Creon says, but it is, right? I'm 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 in charge. What I say goes, it's done. And in the end, um, he calls his dad crazy and leaves. Yeah, I'm like, so what happens right after that? I like how the story unfolds it. So like I know what happens, but I don't know how it unfolds. I'm trying to say it in the order that it unfolds in the story. Uh he says that uh, in order to avoid having the murderer's blood on in the city, he's going to bury Antigone in a cave alive. With a bunch yes. of food. Yeah, so she does it herself. On her own, yeah. Yeah, on her own. And so he buries her alive. Um, and then a soothsayer comes, the same one, right? Who appeared to... Oedipus, he's now come to Creon, and he's blind. I love this play on sight. He's physically blind, so a young, I'm I'm presuming he's young, a young man is helping him around. And um, the soothsayer tells Creon he's wrong, flat out. 
And um, what does Creon do? Oh, I'm so glad you told me that. Nah, <laughs> not at all. He says, oh, you're just after money. You're, you're like, he. Any, everything else is going on here, but he can't hear him um, at all. And so I love how he leaves. The old man leaves and says, let him take out his anger on, on younger men. Yeah. Not on me. I'm out. Um, but he tells him he needs to release the girl. Uh, oh, so then the chorus comes and tells him he needs to release the girl and bury his sister's son. And he still won't. Um, and so then we come to the end of the play, right? It's not till the exodus is what my mind calls it. We're at the end that um, all kinds of things happen, but they don't happen on stage. And there's always a messenger who comes in and tells me what's going on. And so uh, messengers come and, and let this, this, the, I think it's the course is first talking amongst each other. And we find out that as, what made Creon change his mind? The chorus. It was the chorus. Okay. The chorus went to him. That's what it was. Uh, when he, the chorus tells him to release the girl and bury the son, he does. And he had to do it himself. They told him it had to be you. So he goes out to um, get the son first and gather his body up. Then he goes to the buried live girl. But as he's approaching that cave, um, they hear uh, a shrill noise and he knows it's his son's Haman's voice. And so they get into the cave and they found out that Haman um, had found his fiance had hung herself with her clothing from her dress in the cave. And um, when the father comes in, Haman pulls out his two-edged sword and he takes a, a swing at daddy. Daddy backs up, so then he just turns the sword on himself. Dad couldn't take the swing. So um, now his son is dead. He, uh, and the, you know, uh, Antigone is dead. Um, then we pan back into the city and we are with the chorus or messengers discussing and uh, what's going on. And they're whispering in a way to one another. And then Creon's wife, um, Eurydice, Eurydice? Eurydice. 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 Thank you. Eurydice. Yeah, that why. Says, I heard it, but tell me it all again. And so now they tell her what's happened, that um, her son is dead. And she doesn't say a word. She goes back into the palace. And the people outside messengers are kind of wondering, huh, she didn't say anything. Huh, what do you think? She a strong woman? Can she handle that? Should she be trusted to be alone? Maybe she shouldn't be alone. And so somebody goes in. To check on her while that happens creon comes in carrying his dead son and he's mourning you know that basically how awful he is he's taking ownership that he is the, at fault for this when messengers come out to him and tell him oh don't worry guy it gets worse and he's like nothing could get worse well your wife's dead too um he doesn't believe it so they bring her body out and um now he says this is it this the, the you know it can't get any worse. Go ahead and kill me. I don't want to live another day. But he walks off stage and the chorus talks amongst themselves that men need wisdom. Oh, I'm going to have to turn to the book. They need to not boast, but there's something in the middle. Piety. Piety for the gods. And they tell one another, you know, like, the older I get, I get a little more of this, but I never get enough. Thanks. 
Nice. What I leave good out. Job. No, good job. Yeah. Well done. You've been practicing narration. I'm trying. It is a skill I want. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh, and, and I guess. And so we've talked about in the past who the course is because it, it can be different in different plays, right? And so in this one, I think we have the men of Thebes, even ones who apparently maybe want at one point opposed him, but have come back to be under his rule. Mm -hmm. um, so it's an interesting crowd because some of them have already kind of got on his bad list and are back uh, under his good graces. And so they don't really defy what he's saying much until the very end. It's interesting because some in some some plays, I don't remember now how it works in these three, but in, in some Greek plays, the chorus always represents the right answer. Oh, interesting. But in this one, at least in Antigone, that's not the case. Like they start out saying that his laws are just. Yeah. yeah. And at the end, they're like, oh, no, whoops. Yeah, they change course and they... I, I marked because we've been, you know, we've had these conversations about fate and what you can, how much can they avoid it or not. Mm -hmm. They make some lines kind of middle of the play. They're like, oh, it's unavoidable. So it's so sad. But then at the toward the end, they're like, you chose the wrong path. Like they like he had more of a choice, right? He could he chose the wrong path when they're, when they're talking even, to Creon. Yeah, even before Tiresias comes, when he's decided that Antigone's going to die. Mm -hmm which they're in agreement with in the beginning. But then once they, once it gets like firmly and finally declared that she's going to be buried and alive in this cave, then the, doesn't the chorus is like, they, they're compassionate. Like they, they feel yeah. bad. Like they don't, they don't actually, now that a woman has actually been ordered to die, they don't want her to die, but they, but not enough to do anything about it. And then Tiresias comes and then Tiresias, provides the wisdom and the counsel that makes it possible for them to stand mm -hmm. up to Creon, right? Because they won't go against Creon until Tiresias does it first. But right before Tiresias walks in is when they go, they run through three other stories of people who have been buried alive. Mm -hmm. Right. They, to me, so they go and test tech authority, you know, testimony, and they check on the Nae, she was locked up to stop the prophecy of a murder. And then Lycurgus was locked up for mocking the gods. And Edothia uh, was married to a king of Thrace, then blinded two sons, so her husband locked her up. So they run through that. And at the end, they say, um, even, you know, that, that the fates were harsh to these other people, but they say, you know, my noble blood can't help Mm. And then Tiresias walks in. Mm. Yeah, like they're they're compassionate towards Antigone, but not enough to do something about it. Like, yeah. Well, sorry, this is like look, it's 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 been like this in the past. It's gonna be like this now. This yeah. is just your fate. You're, yeah. But Tiresias' word comes and is like, we can't make sacrifices to the gods. Like they won't take it. The altar won't work. Like it literally won't burn the sacrifice properly because the gods are so mad so mad at us right now that's a different I, one of the things that jumped out at me with tiresias is that in his when he first gets on the scene his, he's got this really long speech that he gives mm -hmm. and the last paragraph of that speech which is on page 44 in mm -hmm. our copy 
He says, my son, consider this. Men make mistakes. Everyone does. But some retrieve and recoup, correcting their errors, unless they are stubborn and proud. Right? Yeah. This is Tiresias talking to Creon. Yeah. Now, if you're in our edition, you can jump ahead to page 86, which is Oedipus Tyrannus. And Creon is speaking to Oedipus. And Creon says to Oedipus, Stubbornness without wisdom will do you no good. You are not thinking clearly. Which he says, you know, and that, that scene takes place, whatever, years before or however, you know, months before. And Creon, set, Creon has enough awareness as a, as a advisor, not the guy it's happening to, yeah. to be able to give that advice to Oedipus who can't hear it. And then, and then in this play, it's Creon who's in the Oedipal role, right? Creon who's making the mistakes. Tiresias basically gives him his own advice back to him, but Creon can't hear it. Yeah. I, I, I can't, I kept marking over and over again how much Creon was a- acting like Oedipus from Oedipus Tyrannus in this one. Like Rast, mm-hmm. everybody was like, like plotting against him. Even the guard, like yeah. even the messenger that came to tell him the body had been buried, was like, you obviously took money to let someone get in there and bury it. You know, it's just yeah. like, <laughs> like everybody's against him. It's like, it's like a paranoia at the, as, as the king or something. It's, it's just strange. But so it was over word, and over again. Yeah, does the word tyrant mean something here? Like, like why does, why do some translators translate him Oedipus the king and some Oedipus Tyrannus? What? Well, Tyrannus is what it was, right? And so, yeah. is the Greek name? Okay. Um, but but my understanding is that that word has has more flexibility in uh, than the modern word tyrant. The way the way we use it is always. Um, well, I think a technical term was that. Technically, a tyrant was someone who had come to power not in a line of succession, like they had conquered, like they were a king who had conquered. I think that's the original, like, that's the original technical term. So they weren't the okay. son of the king. They they uh, got the throne. They got the throne somewhat other way besides being the next heir, the next in line. Okay. And so that could be bad if they, you know, but sometimes someone took over who was because the previous guy was not a great king, right? It was a uh, what we would call a tyrant now they were they were or they were oppressing the people or something right so somebody conquered them um mm-hmm. but we've come to take it to mean when we use the word tyrant and we, even when our forefathers for this country used it they meant it in a way that was more definitely a pejorative definitely negative um, but it was about behavior as one was king not the manner by which one came upon being king right and i don't know where that transition starts to take place in history from the Greek to the English, but no, but the Latin translation is Rex. It's King, right? It's not, it's not tyrant. So at least as far as when it was translated into Latin, it was still talking about Oedipus, the King. That's because Oedipus, the King was the King through lawful succession. They just didn't know it. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But, but right, like, that's the play on it is that Oedipus 
is the son of the king who becomes right. king. Yeah. But also became king by killing the king. Tyrant. Well, and became king by marrying the queen, right? Like no. he came to it through marriage, not through technically that's how he came to it, but although he should have come to it through heredity. Hmm. So maybe Sophocles is just having a lot of fun with that word. Well, well but he, then like and but then for Creon to track in the same manner as him. Yeah. That like Everything about Creon's act, act, actions and responses in this one reminded me of Oedipus Rex. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, he wrote this one first, but it's interesting to track Creon across the plays goes from being the faultless one mm -hmm. to at fault in the, even in the middle play. He's, he's not, he's, he's, you know, whatever, dishonest. He's not yeah. being straight with Oedipus to now being like, he's gone all the way over to being irrational and snap yeah. decisions and crazy. I think, it, I think an interesting question because of that is what is, what is Sophocles showing us about Theban kings, right? Like mm. on the one hand, is it, this is the Theban mind and what happens when it can run free, when it can run free because it is in control, right? The king, right. right can't be stopped by other people, right? They keep saying that. Absolute and so what power. you get is you get Oedipus who, with a Theban mind, assumes that everything's a conspiracy, that everything is based on money and greed and the desire for noble lineage and blah, blah, blah. And then, and then Creon doesn't think that way. When his when he doesn't have the freedom to think that way, but the moment he becomes king and has the freedom to think that way, he starts assuming the same thing about everybody else. And and I think one of the arguments in favor of that particular view is that the guard is afraid to go be the messenger. Right, mm -hmm. the guard who witnessed. You remember that he says, he says, we knew that we had to tell you somebody had put dust on the body, right. but nobody wanted to go, so we drew lots. I lost. Yeah. So yeah, here I am. Him. And then he's like, I got to get out of here as soon as possible. But then he's yeah. glad to go be able to be the one to go back and say they found the person, right? But he's the guy that he's one of the guys that Crayon says, you're lying. You took a bribe. Right. And now you're trying to cover it up, right? But the other thing, the other view is... Oh, let me see if I can find it. Okay. Yeah, it's Creon. So this is page nine in our book. This is scene one. This is like Creon's first main speech in, Creon, in scene one. So this is after he's come in with the victory, the chariots, and the parade march, and whatever. And he says, in the second paragraph in my form, form structure here, he says, I realize that to see into any man's soul and test the metal of his thought and judgment, you have to observe him in action, discharging the duties of high office. You find that, Andrea? Oh, yeah. I'm marked. Yep. Yep. You have it, Brandon? Uh, not quite, but... So what, what's interesting about this, this line, what to me, is that, mm -hmm. at least from Crayon's perspective... Creon's perspective, he's not saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
He's saying that power reveals corruption. Right. right. I realize that to see into any man's soul and test the metal of his thought and judgment, we have to observe him in action, discharging the duties of high office. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't really know how corrupt somebody is until they're in a position of power. And then that can be re- that can be revealed to me, right? Yeah. And then, and then, of course, what we find out a scene later, two scenes later, is that it's Creon yeah. is somebody who who was was full of wisdom and honor and integrity in Oedipus Tyrannus. But by the time you get to Oedipus Colonus, like look, the, the the next section right after that, he says, "I have only contempt for one who is cautious." keeps his mouth shut, consults, and schemes for advantage. That's exactly what he's doing in Oedipus at Colonus. Mm-hmm. When he goes to get Oedipus and bring him back to Thebes, he's scheming for advantage, right? Um, so he, he becomes that person, Oedipus Colonus, and then he becomes that person even worse here. Not just the scheming for advantage, but his... He loses all sense of wisdom and integrity and honor in this play, right? Because the corruption of his heart is being brought forth now that he's in that position. Now that he's in the position to discharge the duties of high office, his corruption has been revealed. So from from Creon's perspective, it's it's not that power corrupts you. It's that power reveals the corruption if it's there. And so I wonder what if that's what Sophocles is trying to push us towards, right? Like, is it that idea that power can corrupt or that power reveals existing corruption? Hmm. And, that, and that's interesting. And in what you were talking about a minute ago is, is this the nature of Theban, the Theban court too, the Theban mind that he's talking about. And so it's, it's when, the, when they get that power, that's revealed, right? It, so they may seem wise up until that point. And I think about, you know, Oedipus, obviously, is the other, another example. But even thinking back a generation to his father, is it La- Laius? Is that how you say his name? I always forget. Mm-hmm. I was trying yeah. to find it. But, like, I mean, even think about the premise for this whole setup, right? He, he gives a prophecy that his son is going to kill him and marry his wife. Like, it seems like the odds, for, like, or his wisdom is to get to get rid of the son, right? Whatever. But, like, it almost seems like it'd be less likely for that son to marry his mother. If he grew up with her as mother, like, you know what I mean? Like if he's in the household, like that seems like the best way to avoid that. Right. You know, uh, it, but he's, he, he, he can't think clearly either. If that's, if that's the Theban mind, right. Or maybe he's just, or maybe it's so much the Theban character. He's like, that sounds about right for Thebes. Like the, the throne is always in such jeopardy. Cause it's like the original game of Thrones. Someone's always trying to take you out it's your own kid. It's somebody, right. Um, hmm. That would be interesting if that's if he's if he is talking about the nature of thieves in the Theban mind, and if he's talking about that that power reveals whether it's corruption or not, it reveals the the character of the person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, corruption. Okay, well that then draws me to something that jumped out at me, Matt, mm-hmm. um, toward the end where it's from the chorus uh, after Antigone's kind of being is taken off. Uh, and she says the thing about mis- that the over the overmastering power of fate, um, that wealth and, and city walls and and storm ship, 
the storm tossed ship can get a give deliverance. They the choir goes into this whole thing about. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not there. That's the wrong spot. It's, it's after Theseus comes. They start praying to Di, uh, Dionysus, and I re- it's it's only at that point that I, I guess either realized or it's the first time they tell us that th- this is the god of Thebes, that that's who, you know, that's the city god. I guess is is Dionysus and Bacchus. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, well, that that actually explains a lot. If 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 the god of the drink and the god of kind of uh, I, I don't know uh, at least my picture of Bacchus is always kind of um, like Mardi Gras on steroids, right? It's just the it's it's the hmm. licentiousness and and that would give way to all this kind of hmm. ancestral behavior and and lack of respect for the dead and and um, even these are all interrelated, right? Even Creon was already related to them. And now he's related by, by, um, or he would be related by this, by this marriage. Um, Is, 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 is this another thing where Sophocles is pointing out like, yep, Thebes was, you know, into, into Dionysus. Good thing we're into Athena, who's the goddess of wisdom. And, you know, like, uh, is it another distinction he's trying to draw between, between Athens and Thebes? Um, And, a continual pushing his own his own people toward the side of wisdom um, and discretion, maybe over rash action. Hmm. So he's, he's kind of using Thebes as a foil for Athens to not abandon Athena and wisdom. Yeah, I wonder. You know, we talked about is it? We talked about is it really? It's not really a great reading of it if it's if it's propaganda, but if it's not prop about why Athens is great, but it's not propaganda so much as um, instruction and yeah. and encouragement, yeah, to stay the course with wisdom. Yeah, I, I, that's interesting because Creon's Creon's um, Creon's end is very complete. Like he fully embraces responsibility, at least with his words, he fully embraces responsibility for what's happened. He even says, I I found this interesting on page 55. He says, which is, yeah, a few pages before the end. He says, how, how have I learned and how unhappy I am. And the gods have sent about down upon me this great weight of my disaster. Which sounds like a statement of blame, right? Like the gods yeah. did. But the very next line he says, they nudged me down the path of savagery. Hmm. Right? Like he, they didn't force him down the path of savagery. They didn't compel him down the path of savagery. They nudged him. They down drag. The path. He had a choice and he knows it. Mm-hmm. This, yeah, isn't, this isn't fate imposing its divine will on him this is a different understanding of fate where fate is he has choices but he's being mm-hmm. nudged in a particular direction the section above that above the chorister by creon there the third line on ours on that page 55 he says for my mistakes my obstinacy it was life and death and i chose wrong yeah and the last line of that, and it was my fault. It was my fault. My own grievous, grievous. fault. 
he he fully embraces it, which that's a big deal. Mm. Um, I I don't feel like we saw that from Oedipus. While Oedipus takes his mom, wife's brooches and gouges out his eyes and say, you know, banish me. He he vacillates um, between what he wants done and not done with him. Self. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. Yeah. Oedipus is a little bit unclearer in his what he learns and what he doesn't learn. Mm-hmm. Um, Creon's just it's all on, all on display, and the chorus are even responds too in the line in between yeah. those two. Yeah, you come to your senses now, but it's too late. Like even the choristers is, is acknowledging. Yeah, that the guilt was really his. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that he carries that before he finds out about his wife. Yeah. That's just his son, right? Because that's when the messenger says, my Lord, you carry this sorrow in your arms, but there is more in the house that you will discover. Yeah. After he owns those. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think certainly the end of, of Tyrannus Oedipus is, is his learning is incomplete or his, his revelation is incomplete. Which is why he has to go on suffering longer. I, I, I get the impression that he was wandering quite a while with Antigone. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he, he has, and that's why he's not immediately exiled. And that's why he's not immediately killed. Is it? I remember, not maybe, maybe why, but it allows for him to, to suffer longer and and maybe gain better perspective, which he seems to have at least by the way he's treated by the gods toward the end of that play. I'm I'm just fascinated that this play came out first, mm-hmm. right? So you, if you see this Creon, and then the next thing you see is Creon and Oedipus Rex. If you're a, if you're a viewer, what an, like what are you asking yourself? You know, you're asking yourself, whoa, how did he go from? How did he get to where I know him from? There, he seems pretty you know pretty wise. It's interesting. To think about how these would reflect on each other, how one play would make you have to reconsider what you thought in a previous play. But. I wonder once all three were written, what order they performed them, if they performed them all together. Yeah. But, because uh, to me, it would be fascinating to read this one first, mm-hmm. and then read the and then read Oedipus Tyrannus and try to figure out what the heck. Yeah. Yeah. Who could possibly have turned Creon into such a tyrant? You would definitely be like, oh, I've got to, re- I got to, I got to go watch that third play because I don't know how he got from there to there. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I, 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 I noticed something, Andrea, in this reading of the play that I had not noticed before. It didn't stand out to me in the same way mm-hmm. because of all the attention you drew to the curses mm-hmm. in the previous one. I noticed that Antigone actually is, utters a curse. Mm. On page 40. Okay. That um, it's right before Ode 4. If you have Ode 4 in your book there, Brandon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's her last big speech before mm-hmm. Ode 4. Near the end of it, she says, What law of the gods have I broken? Obedient to them, I am condemned. If I have been wrong, I forgive my judge. Mm. But if what I did was right, may the gods punish him who condemns me. Let his suffering be equal to my own. What's interesting is that her curse, what's interesting to me, is that her curse is conditional. 
Like she she leaves room for the fact that she could be wrong. Yeah. Right. And then says, if I'm wrong, then no curse, no curse ought to be applied. Right. He should be forgiven. Yeah. I forgive him. But if he, I'm right, this is the curse. But it's pretty it's pretty strict curse though. It's a pretty harsh curse, right? Is suffering be equal to my own? But she doesn't ask for more. No, she doesn't ask for more. But she lost mm-hmm. marriage. Mm-hmm. She lost uh, father, mother, mm-hmm. sister, right? And then he loses his mm-hmm. wife, son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. comes along and confirms the curse, really, without referencing it. But he says, if they, if he goes unburied and she go, and she dies, right. the blood, your blood, the blood of your family will have to pay for that blood, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's why he, you know, he doesn't. I mean, I think that's where he. Maybe that's where he can own it when his end comes. Why he's able to see, you know, like go back to sight has been in, intriguing me because. In the beginning, well, in our beginning, where we started our journey together with Oedipus, he had physical sight, but he took it away from himself because he didn't want to see the misery in front of him anymore. But that's when he actually could see better. That's when he knew the truth better. Um, And here we have Creon, who in the beginning has sight and is able to see and share. His sight is blinded come the end of his life, right? His is opposite in some manner and that's when all is taken from him um Mm -hmm. so like i've been trying to think about the prophet priest and the king here right because i would say the the prophet is our tiresias right and he comes and he foretells the future he has vision um and in a, a rightly ordered kingdom he would be heard yeah and a priest can see where you are as a people in history and help you know where you are in history. And I feel like in this play, Antigone plays that role because Mm -hmm. she comes to her sister and says, this is what's happening, but it's not right. Our brother must be buried. That is what's right. This is the place we are to play in history right now. Um, But, and Creon won't have it. Right. And he, his son comes to him as best as he can and tells him, you could be wrong, dad. It's okay to be wrong. And he can't. Right. So he's had at least two. And then finally, when the chorus does, he turns, but they're acting that priestly role at that point. And him in that King role at the end here, um, a King is one who can suffer the realities well of both life and death. And I think I was very marked, but bothered me that his son first tried to kill him, but he couldn't take it, though he warranted it. He mm-hmm. was the one at fault. And if he had taken that, that could have been the end. Hmm. It wouldn't have given Haman back his, his wife. Um, but it may have spared Haman and Eurydice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So you, when you say take it, you mean not move. Yeah. But he should have just let his son do. I don't. Uh, even deliver, deliver his punch. I don't know if he would have killed him in one blow. It seems that way in the Greek plays. It takes one blow and you're out. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a sword, so if you get good hit, probably good shot. I've seen a lot of Star Wars. You know, like they do a lot of shooting, and man, they don't take them out. It takes a long time to take these people out. Yeah, lasers are not as powerful oh, as okay as swords. Yeah, yeah, electric swords are not as powerful as swords. All right. Well, I mean, but if you just stand there and take a blow from a lightsaber, you're probably going to go down pretty quick. You just don't don't try to defend yourself. <laughs> and I'm, yeah, I'm I'm just pondering it. You know, what's the role of the king that he did not fill here? And I, I think part of the role of the king is the one who can suffer life and death. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because there's 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 very clearly a sense in which Creon thinks his laws are necessarily mm-hmm. on on level with the gods' laws. Right. If he makes a law, the gods would obviously agree with it. Right. Rather than trying to identify divine law and then creating human laws that correspond to it he assumes by making a law it is divine agreeable to the divine law um so there's that there's that failure in the kingship right right he sees himself as a legislator i i I know we're not supposed to do this and so forgive me for doing this but there's there's actually there's actually a verse in i think it's in like peter or james or something Hmm. where it it condemns the idea that humans can make laws. Oh wow! Like I think it, I think it might just say something like there is only one lawgiver and that is God or something like that, right? I can't remember, but it's this idea that we don't make laws. Humans don't make. We are not legislators. Mm-hmm. King of the King of Thebes is not a legislator. Nope. The gods are the legislators. Right. God is legislator. Right. We simply imitate those laws. Right. When we make laws, we're not making laws. We're just expressing what is law. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not doing that here. Right. Are we today? But that's a separate conversation. Nope. How about this one? <laughs> we're putting them into place. Yeah. Here, right? yeah. We're putting them into effect in a specific, specific time and place, a specific circumstance. Yeah. We're just yeah. Yeah. That's when he gets three people telling him your law is not in line with the divine law. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Antigone tells him, his son tells him, and Theseus tells him, or not Theseus, but Tiresias. Tiresias, thank you. And so it, it's not like he's not given fair warning on those accounts. Right. So you've got this, this, this lawgiver failure, mm-hmm. right? But then you've got this failure that you're bringing up, Andrea, where he's not willing to lay down his life. Mm-hmm. For the people, which, to be fair, Oedipus did seem willing to do. Right. By the end of the. Oh right, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Um. Yeah. So he, I mean, his life changed significantly because of his willingness to mm-hmm. to save the people, to save the city that mm-hmm. Creon did not have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got that failure. You've got this legislative failure. Um. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's. It's bizarre how far he fell. Which is where his words and actions don't match up, right? Because he says that you know, he's, doing, he's doing all of this. Well, but also he's doing all of this for the city. Yeah. Right. He's yeah. doing all of this for Thebes. Even his law was to because that because that son opposed Thebes, right, with an outside force. And so he keeps saying this is all for Thebes. But when it comes down to it, he won't 
retract his own law, even when the gods are clearly displeased with their sacrifices mm-hmm. because of what he's done. Okay, so that brings me to my favorite line in the whole play from Antigone. I mean, it's my favorite line in the whole play, and it comes from Antigone. It's not my favorite line from Antigone in the whole play. Gotcha. My favorite line in general. From the is whole it on play. page 41? It is not. Okay. But we can save that one if you want to. <laughs> uh, it's right after she talks to Creon. It's while she's talking to Creon. Mm-hmm. And she says, so it's page 24 in my book, our book. Okay. So he's talking to her about why she did what she did, why she buried Polynesis, right? Mm-hmm. And then he says, yeah, but Polynesis was the, the wrong brother, the unjust brother. Right. And then Ediocles was the just brother. So is it really fair to Ediocles if you show Polynesis the same honor that you show that we've shown Ediocles? Mm-hmm. Um, and then she says, um, this is on page 23 where I'm reading now, but he says, Ediocles was bloodkin too, remember? Yes, of the same mother, the same father. Well, then how can you insult his memory? He will not bear witness or take offense. No, if you honor his enemy, a traitor, Polynices was my brother, not some slave. Mm-hmm. But he attacked the city Ediocles defended. Even so, there are honors due the dead. For the just and the unjust, the good and the wicked. And now this, this is, I love this line. This is up there. Yeah. The world below... Who knows what was good or evil, which I don't, I don't take that to mean that the underworld has a different set of standards for good and evil. I take her to mean how we don't always know with what we think is good or evil is actually in alignment with. Yeah. I think it means like after it's all done, you still don't know. And then he says, enemies don't change, not even in death. Mm -hmm. And this is my favorite line right here. Mm -hmm. I was not born to feud, but to love and to honor. And there's just something about that line where, where she's saying, look, the gods demand a certain sort of behavior toward the dead. And we don't get to, in this case, at least it's, it's with respect to the dead because this is what the play is about, right? Mm-hmm. But the gods demand a certain kind of behavior to us, and we don't get to decide whether to do that based on some feud involved, right? So the gods demand that we bury the dead because the dead belong to the gods, right? The dead belongs to Hades. If we don't bury him, then Hades isn't getting what's his, I guess, in kind of Greek mythology, right? So the, the dead deserve to be buried. It doesn't matter if the dead was a good guy or a bad guy. Mm-hmm. We give the dead to the to Hades, to the gods. Um, which, of course, has, a, has an obvious parallel for us with, you have heard that it was said to love your neighbor, but I say to love your, you love your enemy also, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, we don't get to decide whether to be just or kind or good or to follow the laws of the gods to the people around us based on whether they're good people or not. That's, that's to be somebody born to feud. But we're not born to feud. We're born to love and to honor. And I just love that line. It's so beautiful. I like your translation much better than mine. My line there is, 
even so I give both love, not share their hatred. Mm. It lacks that, it lacks that, not like it lacks that born, born to element. I think so. It's a good, I like yours too, though. That's a good, that's a good line, but this one seems, yeah, this translation seems to pull out the, like it's her nature rather than just. So what's your next line, Brandon, like Creon's response. Uh, down then to hell, love there if you if love you must. While I am living, no woman shall have rule. Okay, yeah, that's close. I mean, but really, like this in all these plays, Antigone's the only one who seems virtuous throughout. Like she's the only. I mean, we don't see her in the first play in in, in Epis Tyrannus, and it's. It's unclear how old she would be in that play. I, like, we don't know how old of a daughter she is when when that all goes down. But she's like she seems to choose what's best. Like she stays with her father. She, you know, she honors her father all throughout. Mm-hmm. Honors the wishes during that play. Um, and then this one, she just does what's right, even from even though in the very beginning she knows she's going to have be penalized for it. Chas has her sister for not being having greater piety to their family. Mm-hmm. But then this many is the only one left standing that we know of right at the end of the play <laughs> at the end of the play. Right. And Creon. Creon's still alive, right? Oh yeah. yeah Creon's still alive. Yeah. 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 Just miserable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, so Kobe loves this play. And I think a lot of people like this play. I think it's because she's because for a character, I think more than anything, she's, I mean, she, it, of anybody, she's the willing to sit, like she's the willing to do the things you're talking about with, uh, that kingship requires, right? To die for what's right, to yeah, to to put the gods the gods law above above man's law. She's the most kingly of all any of the characters I think that we get in the three plays. Antigone, yeah, yeah, Antigone. Yeah. I was just talking about Kobe still. Well, you know. In case you listen later, I was definitely talking about Kobe still also. <laughs> I was equating Antigone and my wife. Yeah. I, so I asked you about line 41, Matt. I just, it's not it's not a favorite of mine. But when you were talking about Antigone earlier, she says here, right before the chorus doors start revealing the three other stories of locked up people. Um, and she's talking with Creon. She She's quit speaking to to Creon directly, and she speaks to the whole city. City of Thebes and gods of my forefathers. See how I am led away, the last of a royal house. Right? We already know that royalty won't protect you, right? And she says, see what I suffer from men for having shown the laws of heaven reverence. Yeah. Right? There's, a, there's, there's something else that we answer to, and it's not men. Yeah. Right. And that's what she answers to. And I think that is, that's the queen king role. Um, Yeah. Yeah, She's certainly, she's certainly embodying those two elements that that element of willing to die for what's right. And then for the people or for the city or family or whatever, or for the right. And then the willingness to uh, submit human law to divine law. Yeah. So good. Huh. Yeah, but th- when she says that to the city of Thebes, that's when the choristers, the city, the elders, as I understand them to be, start going back through other stories. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, hold on. What's she saying? So they're trying to process it. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, why why turn to the stories all of a sudden? Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like they're thinking, wait, does she have a point? Right. Wait. Wait. Let's and see if there are any other stories that uh well, we can defend our position. <laughs> the three examples they give of someone who was basically buried alive, entombed alive. Mm-hmm. None of them are entombed alive for for just violating man's law either. The first mm-hmm. one is that maybe the closest to her situation. She was entombed to prevent a bad prophecy, right? right? But still, it's like she was being sacrificed almost to the you know um, mm-hmm. to prevent a horrible thing. The second one offends the gods, like you know, mm-hmm. mocks a god. And then the right. third was I forgot the wife. Oh what? right, she she uh, gouged her own son's eyes out. So I mean, so she's yeah. being who were, I guess, the, also the heirs, right? And so she's being punished for a mm-hmm. a, a more legitimate crime, anyway. Right. Um, it seems like not something that's simply the uh, the whims of a single king. Yeah. It's interesting too, though, because in the fir- the first one, mm-hmm. it's yeah, this happened, but Zeus came to her. Right. Yeah. Right, and Zeus loved her and probably, probably yep. impressed on Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and and after they, re, you know, go through these three stories, that's when they actually, so I got it wrong. That's when they decide noble blood can't help. And then Tiresias, the prophet, walks in and affirms it. Mm-hmm. Creon's in the wrong. Right. Interesting, right? Because are the so what are the choristers saying there? Are the choristers saying are the choristers saying no? There's there's a precedence for locking people away, uh, so this is okay. He's allowed to do this, or the choristers saying something more like this has happened, and you're and the fact that you're a woman and the fact that you're nobility. It's not going to, it can't, it won't stop the fates, right? Like, if this is what's faded, it's faded, and you're just going to have to live with it, and so are we and everybody else. Um, like, more like, it's not a matter of right or wrong, it's a matter of resigning yourself to fate mm-hmm. kind of thing. That's where I, I like it. At this point. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I feel like they get to with that second chorister, that last paragraph, before Tiresias walks in. Um, right, even to her, a child, a child of a god, the fates were harsh. So, mm. like, yeah, maybe it's okay to be harsh to Antigone right now, because even to this part goddess, the the fates were harsh. Yeah, but, but it's interesting how quickly they, their tune changes when Tiresias comes. A prophet's that big of a deal. Yeah. 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 Before the prophet comes, they're like, "Well, fate's gonna fate." And then after the prophet comes along, they're like, whoa, whoa, no, no. Yeah. You, you personally need to go fix this mess. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the the, the need for the prophet is huge then. Mm. Yeah. Right? We, we cry out for kings. We don't cry out for prophets. And why All does right. he go to the dead body first? Yeah. I thought I was thinking the exact same thing while I was reading it. Like she's locked in a cave. Go let her out before she suffocates or starves to death. Didn't even but, occur to me that she would hang herself. Right. Like even if she doesn't do it herself, like you're running a much bigger risk the longer you leave her in there yeah. of, of messing this up. Body just, can wait an hour. Body's oh. already dead. Yeah. Yeah. 
But maybe I we just I just don't understand how important bearing the debt is to. That's true. Dad, you know, or That's but true. also wasn't it he it was he was supposed to take get the body and then bury it in the cave. Yes. But then he doesn't do that. He buries it right there. He burns it and buries it right there. Because he carried it. Uh, did he? Yeah. It says he put he established a mound over the ashes. Yeah. Oh yeah. So. Maybe that was part of it too, is that he broke the rule on what he was supposed to do with the body. Although it wasn't Tiresias that told him that, it was the choristers, right? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I marked, but I don't know where it falls. So it's Tiresias, Tiresias is still there. Um, Tiresias, once Tiresias leaves, the choristers start talking with Creon, and one of the choristers tells him, wise men always know when to take advice. And that's when he says, tell me what to do, I'll do it. I'll obey. And they come up with the plan. And at the end of that, before he heads off to live out the plan, Creon says, there's no getting away from the old traditions, their safety, their wisdom. That is the way to live. Hmm. Why does he say that? After, so Tiresias leaves, and then the choristers start in on him, and he tells the choristers, you know, tell me what to do, and I'll I'll obey. And they tell him, release the living girl, put into the, and put into it the body of the brother and do it without delay and act quickly um, and do it yourself. And he says, I will right now. And then to his servant is when he says, assemble the guards, get picks and shovels and let us go to the cave, that cave to release her. I'll be there myself. I was the one who did this. And now that I've changed my mind, I must make it right. There's no getting away from the old traditions, their safety, their wisdom. That is the way to live. Mm. Yeah. So the, my laws are the way. Mm-hmm. Now, now just became, no, my laws should have aligned with the way. The old yeah. traditions, their safety, their wisdom. They yeah. are the way. Mine yeah. reads, I fear it may be wisest to observe throughout one's life the laws that are established. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting that as, as soon as he leaves the chorus is like, as soon as Therese, Theresius leaves, the chorus is like, um, you know, he's never been wrong once. <laughs> yeah. I think just heads up there, Creon. Mm-hmm. What what who's your translation, Brandon? Uh, that's a good question. It's Oxford World Classics. Let's see. Uh, HDF Kitto, K-I-T-T-O. Does your does yours have like a like the English seems more formal? Like almost not not exactly like reading King James English, but a little of. bit. Um, yeah, I like I I wonder listening to y'all if if it's less of a literal translation. And more of a that that kind of you know if it's more akin to like uh, like a Butler's translation of Homer you know where it's trying to bring it yeah. into the formal English language as opposed to doing line by line like Lattimore. Yeah. Because um, ours has a very like contemporary feel to it. Very, huh. it's using very natural language like like you would actually speak in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, which sometimes some. I mean, I think it, I kind of like it because there's places where I think 
things jump out at me more clearly because it's just said so directly. Mm-hmm. But there are other places where it's like, I don't like, I don't know what this, what this, um, he has this thing where he says, they do this, all, they said, and it was in all three plays where they yell, O-M-O-I, mm. O-M-O-I, or O-M-I, or O-M-O-I, maybe it's French, I don't know, O-M-O-I. Oh, and I was like, I didn't have no idea what that exclamation is. No, I wonder if it's like contemporary to his, to the translator's time. Yeah. I just thought it was a vocal sound of, of suffering. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That, but that's not an example of the of the contemporaneous of it. There's just other places where if it's just like a word here and a word there where it's like, what? There's no way they use yeah. that word. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's easier for us when it's like in a little bit, uh, not old English, but you know what I mean? Middle English, King James English, whatever, whatever, to think, oh, that sounds like it's more ancient. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even though it's probably pretty standard, you know, it, even at that point, it was probably a weird, it would have been weird for Greek to say it that way or something, but it seems like it makes, it fits better, but. Yeah. Okay, so at the end of the play, right, it's just Creon and the messenger and the choristers going back and forth where Creon says, take me away quickly. I do not exist. I am less than nothing. And one of the courser says, uh, Creon says, all I want is the end that I have prayed for. And the courser says, prayers? At this point, fate has taken over. There's no point in praying, dude. It's over. Right? And so I wonder, they are like, what what are the fates that have taken over? Like the understanding of fate. Because I still feel like they wrestle through that here. I think that's why they check with those three stories to yeah. say, eh, now this is what happens. Um, I don't know. And it's kind of weird to me that the choristers fall back on fate again. Right. And they very clearly misinterpreted fate earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How late is this line? Uh, easy is to, you know, Last page from mine. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Mine says decreed no man will ever will ever find escape. Pray no more for suffering from suffering that has been decreed, no man will ever find escape. Mm. From what has been decreed? From no su- suffering that has been decreed. Mm. Right. So maybe it's a, it's too late. Like you you had a lot of chances, but now you have to suffer the punishment for what you did. <laughs> Yeah. And so Creon's last words right after that, these are his last words in the play. He says, I don't know which way to look at him or at her. Everything I have touched has turned out badly. And my fate breaks on my head and pounds me down. So he has an individual fate. It's a lower F, lower, lower F here. You know, my individual fate breaks on my head and pounds me down. Whereas earlier the choristers said fate, capital T, capital F, fate has taken over. Yeah. I don't know how much credits to put to that. But that's when the choristers then summarize and say wisdom is what you need. And piety toward the gods. You need that too. Oh, and never, never boast. That's dangerous. (laughs) How do you take all this and just, you know, banter back and forth? Yeah, well, some of us, by the time we get to be old, we've learned a little, at least. Yours, At least a little. Yours is more conversational and more in and in some ways more poetic than than my oh, translation. I think, very, I think whoever did, our translator 
David R. Slavitt uh, knows rhetoric. Like he definitely has poetic forms um, that are beautiful the way he uncovers things. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. Creon finishes with me saying, oh, where can I look? What strength can I find? On me has fallen a doom greater than I can bear. So this one does use things that we don't often use, like that that use of doom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uses folly in ways that are kind of more antiquated for, for the modern speaker. Um, but then the chorus's response is, of happiness, far the greatest part is wisdom and reverence toward the gods, proud words of the arrogant man, in the end, meet punishment, great as his, as his pride was great, till at last he is schooled in wisdom. So it's much more of like a Mm. proverb like it's more proverbial in its in its yeah in its language where yours seems more poetic and conversational translation yeah i mean i love the last two lines right when he says but some of us by the time we get to be old have learned at least a little yeah and the last one says but it's never enough never enough no right and i just go back to we don't know when we've lived a good life until the end and do you have multiple voices of choristers the way it's written? First chorister, second chorister. Oh, see, I've only got a chorus. Like there's just one um, chorus voice through this whole play. Okay. There's one place in ours where it said, I noticed today where it says this, this should, it, it's like a bracket, like a, like a stage direction. Yeah. And it's, this should be said in unison if possible. Huh. That almost makes me wonder if there are different um source texts for this play which would not be that weird for a play um we have mo- what's that especially this old right I mean, source text right for right shakespeare we have different ones from his time where he edited or changed it up or whatever mm-hmm. um but different copies of this got written down in greek in different plate and you know performed different places or or someone you know someone altered it after sophocles at some point you know they made it edits on it yeah huh yeah, we'll have first course or second course, or then sometimes it says chorus, so then you know they're all in yeah. unison on that one. Um, and then the, the close, like if it, but if it's never enough as the last word spoken, then the stage direction says the chorus muttering unintelligibly to each other exits left toward the city. Huh. So the leaders go back into the city. Yeah. Yeah. The most I got was differences about whether they were chanting, talking, or singing. But then there's a, there's a note here at one point where like, the whole rest of the play is sung except for these lines where it's noted. So mm-hmm. like once you get into that epode or whatever at the end, it's almost all sung in this, in this version. But one where it tells us that this should be said in the Sato voice. I don't even know what it's called. It's, it's nice. Okay. It's like over here where just the two of us are going to talk for a minute behind my covered hand, you uh, know, so that everybody doesn't as hear an asi- it. Like an aside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I told y'all in first or second play that typically when I do a play, I'd use the green to mark that kind of stage direction. There's there's very little in this version of mine anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there wasn't a lot for me to mark in that. But that kind of stuff is what's so helpful to me because it's help, helpful to know, oh, these cor- no one else can hear these two cor- choristers talking to each other, just the two of them talking to themselves. Yeah. Because then you know what lines or what advice and wisdom Creon hears or doesn't hear, you know, those kind of things. So on this one, when I scan green, right, I'm going to go look for those stage directions. And this one was not, I, I stopped doing some of that because it gave away too much. Oh, I, like, I just need to enjoy this. 
Um, so the stage directions oh, in this last oh, section right. carries body in. It's kind of, yes, kind of a giveaway. Exactly. It's a, it's a dead okay. giveaway. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> That's a good point. On plays, probably green should be done last instead of first. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah. That's funny. Or as you're going, you can just do the green as you're going. Yeah, as you're reading. That's fine. But yeah, they gave away. I, I stopped. That's funny. I wanted to enjoy it. I think maybe my brains didn't either didn't register it doing that. Or it's, you know, it's it's in in my copy, the all the situations in brackets and sometimes with some italics. Mm -hmm. So I would just see the bracket and not read it. I would just underline the like the bracketed part. So maybe I got away with it. But that's funny. Do you so what's our next uh, step? Well, I was going to ask, do you have a favorite of the three plays? Have they read? Mm. This one. This one? Yeah. I wish I could reread them in this order, but I can't. Like, I, you know, I can't undo that. Yeah. yeah. But I'm grateful for the order we did read them in because I think I needed to know what I knew to come here. Because the knowing that the people at the time would have known these stories and then had this one performed in front of them live for the first time. Yeah. So would you, if you were going to teach this to a group of kids would, now, would you, or adults even, would you, who, if you're going to teach this to a group of people yeah. who had never encountered it before, yeah. what order would you read, would you teach it? Well, so I'm just that kind of person that I sure would. I would do it in this order now. Well, having, having read this one now. Yeah, Antigone first. Knowing that that's how it was presented, and they, and, you know, they don't, and whatever stories might students might know adults child right. whatever age might know but that's what they know and we go into it with that and if they bring in those other things it's fine right because the people at the time would have known that's fine um and just see and i'd love to see that experience and see it on them to know yeah because now that i've read it i you don't have to know that much of the detail of oedipus's story to understand like just to understand this play you want you're not lost yeah right um Okay, her her father was cursed, and you know whatever. But it's her choices here are the are the crux of this play, the um, the the decision to bury and then confront and then just take whatever comes from Creon. Um, so I think you could I think you could get away with it more than I thought you could probably. So what? How would you say it? Right? Like you always say, you, you have to enter Narnia for the first time through the wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to enter Thebes for the first time through. Mm. I mean, it's in in my copy. It is first. Now, my copy doesn't have. It's not Sophocles one. It's Antigone, Oedipus, the King, and Electra, um, mm. which I think is a completely different storyline, but. Um, but um, the, just those two together is interesting that you would do Antigone and then Oedipus the King. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I have a. That would be different, too, though, because then we're going to end. We're going to end our readings if we do that with Oedipus at Colonus. And that one's just kind of blah. I, I, I don't I, I would have to re reread it in that order. Um, I like Oedipus. Is Oedipus Colonus probably my second of three. Yeah, I'm not it, recalling it right now how it ends. It made me rethink a lot of things we talked about about Oedipus the King, right? So I wouldn't want to yeah. skip it. Truth. Um, no, I wouldn't skip it. I think I probably would land with like, well, just don't do the the thing where you don't do all this, the whole story, right? Like, like we tell people all the time, like 
don't read just the Inferno with kids and then leave them there in hell yeah. with Dante. You've got to like, got let the whole story unravel. Yeah. And so I think you could get away with starting. I don't know that I would start with Oedipus at Colonus ever, but I think you could get away with starting with either Antigone or Oedipus the King. And as long as you give students the whole story, that then they're going to get the fullness of like what Sophocles is presenting to us so they can make conclusions about how much how much fate rules things and how much is um you know do we have to make wise choices and they can wrestle with those questions in their fullness i think if you give them all three stories whereas if you just stick with one you're gonna you're gonna kind of have one like you're looking at the gem from one side right like from one facet but not the others um you want a complete picture of sophocles i think andrea hit the nail on the head though actually which is what i think this is far less about fate and much more about what a, what a king is mm-hmm. yeah right but i think you'd be hard pressed to see that with just one play oh for sure right, right, right. but that's what, so i just turned to the end of oedipus at colonus because i couldn't remember the ending and oh it's wonderful and it ends with antigone yeah i didn't and, recall that and we get an example there of a good king right we have mm-hmm. these two right. bad examples yeah and then we have then we have the king of athens which i'm blanking on his name now theseus Theseus, which should have been easy because he has he's the ship guy. Um, and and because then, you, kept saying, you kept calling Tiresias by his name. I know, I know. <laughs> that too. Um, and, and then you, you could even argue you have this other counterexample in Antigone herself, right? That she she fulfills the the requirements of the king without actually being the king. Yep. Um, yeah. So I agree. I think that's I think that's probably a lot bigger study of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um but it requires all three plays to really capture, to get that. Huh. I wonder how much of this is actually about, look at all this stuff keeps happening and all these people keep blaming the fates. And really it's what the Kings should have been doing. Right. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he's trying to show the Athenians. This is how ridiculous you sound blaming the fates for everything. Yeah. Just do what you're supposed to do. Right. Like just, yeah. You know the right thing to do, and you want excuses for why you don't, why it doesn't matter. But you're right, not in a way that you could see with just one of the three. One I don't think three. so. I, it makes I me wonder. Lots of types. Yeah, <laughs> that makes me wonder how much of the academic um, kind of assessment of these plays is done too much in isolation, where they're just looking at the one play and coming to if not wrong, incomplete conclusions about what Oedipus Tyrannus is about and what Antigone is about, because neither, none of them are about something in, by themselves. They're, they're, they're about something in relation to the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well right. said. If I could give a nod to our translator. Okay. I did read the translator's preface of this one, which I don't normally. And I appreciated what he offered to his readers. He said, I am mindful of the fact that some of the readers of this book may be students to whom it has been assigned. I apologize to them and hope they can somehow overlook that unfortunate compulsion and find ways to respond to Sophocles' poetry innocently as if they had come to these pages voluntarily and even eagerly. Nice. I like it. What? Yeah. Which is to say not don't be here because of fate, but be here because you choose to be here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Your, teacher, your teachers don't control your fate. You, you get to choose mm-hmm. how much you, how you're going to enter this text. Mm-hmm. 
Excellent. Why didn't you translate this? Is this guy still alive? I would love to meet him. You start putting down names to interview on the I have a copyright podcasts. in front of mine of 2007. Yeah, same. Oh, that's pretty new. Mm-hmm. We should look him up. Please. Boss. Always need a good interview for the other podcast. So. <laughs> um, speaking of future podcasts, so next we will be recording a Q&A for all three plays. Um, send in your questions about a particular play, about the overarch, overarching storyline. Um, tell us where we're wrong and, and how we're misinterpreting the plays. You know, <laughs> whatever's your fancy. Um, we are We are are working on having a space that'll help us do this a little bit better in the, in the social media space, but that's not there yet. So if you would just want to send us those questions and comments at podcasts at circeinstitute.org. Um, and I'll put that link in the, in the show notes as well. Um, and just a little heads up. So you have a little time to prepare. The next thing we'll be reading uh, will be some selections from Ovid. Um, and so we will try as, within the next week or so to get those uh, stories, um, uh, settled which 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 ones we're going to cover, and that way I can talk, tell you a little bit about which ones we'll cover in the in the Q and A episode. Um, Matt, Andrea, any final thoughts on Antigone or on Sophocles one before we turn it over to the to the questioners? Well, I I mean the comment that you better get a hold of this guy quick because he's eighty he's going to be eighty eight this year. Whoa! Oh, so you better uh, okay. He's translated a lot of stuff, man. Yeah. He's originally from New York. Greek, Hebrew, and Latin he's translated from. Yeah. And he's living he's in Cambridge, Latin. Massachusetts, from what I can see. Okay. Spanish and French. Greek, Hebrew, Latin, Spanish, and French. He's, he's fluent enough in those languages that he's translated works from them into English. Mm. He's in Cambridge. That makes you wonder where he, if he was a professor at some point. He ran for the Massachusetts House of Representatives in 2004. Sorry, I'm just reading Wikipedia now. I should stop. Well, I mean, at, at this point, I feel like I may have to go make a, I may have to do this interview in person because I don't want to make an 88 year old figure out Zoom. So, so to figure that out. All right. Any thoughts on the place? Uh, well, I mean, just that they're, they're incredible and I love them. And um, I think Antigone is an incredible embodiment of wisdom and virtue for any human being to imitate and that reading them just to see that. And even though she doesn't appear in Oedipus Tyrannus, her wisdom and virtue becomes even clearer in light of Oedipus Tyrannus that, you know, reading the whole trilogy is worth it. Although it's not really a trilogy, but you know, three, three plays. Um, and I really, really look forward to hearing to going over the questions next week that the readers uh, or the listeners ask you. Yeah. Andrea? I've greatly enjoyed reading this myself and discussing it with y'all, but then also within my home. So I've been reading it with all of the teenagers here and 21-year-olds. Um, and we've had a great time talking about uh, kingdomness and leadership and what is our role there and what does that look like? Um, what's our responsibility? Um, what do we learn from Antigone? Nice. So, yeah, she was great to, especially when Creon says, you know, this will not be run by a woman. Yes. And yet Antigone is the embodiment that we are to look at, even from a man 
a white man who wrote this play so long ago? Well, that's nice. Kobe and I haven't discussed Antigone yet, but she has been telling me when she thinks I'm wrong about the other things, the other plays we've discussed. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, Antigone is just the piety is what stands out to me. So that's, uh, I sit here thinking in our circles, um, you know, naming a child or an animal after Penelope because she's so beloved has become mm. uh, commonplace. Some people might want to give Antigone a go for <laughs> naming somebody after a, a good literary character. Mm. So, all right. Well, um, thank you all for joining us. Uh, we will see you next week for the Q&A and hope you enjoy getting ready for Ovid. Bye.